Welcome to Envision from the United Way of Greater Charlottesville and News Radio WINA. I'm Robbie Respetto, and I'm here in the studio with Price Thomas, coming to you from downtown Charlottesville. We want to thank our sponsor, Ty Cooper with Life View Marketing and Visuals. And with that, I'll turn it over to you, Price. Yeah, so this is our, uh, our our initial episode here. We're masked up in the studio, and we have on the line the one, the only, Dr. Ebony Hilton, Associate Professor of Anesthesiology and a critical care physician right here at the University of Virginia, and also the medical director of DEI consulting firm Goodstock Consulting, off a long shift and awake with us this morning. Dr. Hilton, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. How are you guys? <laughs> We're doing all right. We really appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me on the first show. I'm super humbled and super proud of you guys, too. The entire success of these initiatives does rely solely on you, though, so there is a little bit of added pressure. <laughs> you know, I'll take that, burden. I think in 2020, we all learned to carry a load that we didn't think was manageable, so let's do it. Well, we figure since you had your own podcast and you're on our board and you're amazing, you'd be the great uh, person to have the inaugural show and kick it off for us. So can you tell us a little bit about your background, Ebony? Yeah, um, it's, I, I tell people all the time, I'm just a country girl from um, Little Africa, South Carolina. But, yeah, I grew up in the middle of three girls. Um, early on in life, my mom told us about an unfortunate um, passing of my brother. He would have been 43 this year, but he was born prematurely, lived for three days, and passed away. Um, and hearing that story sparked this interest in me to want to become a doctor because I figured doctors were able to save all people, right? Um, I didn't know a doctor in my life. And so, um, so yeah, that, that started my journey at the age of eight. Um, and then growing up in medicine, what I've realized is that the same disparities that my mom had to endure um, are the same disparities that exist today. And my question is why? And so with the founding of Good Stock Consulting, our thought is that we know there's nothing genetically different, you know, this process, that, um, our genetic process that causes different races to have different outcomes along the lines of health. And so our job is to figure out then what's the structural changes that need to be made within the system and to tackle those accordingly. And, and you've been a, a regular voice on health equity uh, for a while now, and then, you know, obviously most recently through through 2020. W- what is the biggest health disparity that, that's been illuminated by the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, um, I think the biggest one, right, because what, what we see with COVID-19 is that there's so many risk factors that we say um, uh, that have worse outcomes, older age, and we say those with com- uh, comorbidities, right? But what we know is that African-Americans in particular have higher death rates than literally every single age category. Um, it's not just our elderly population, of which for 85 and older, one in every 56 black people who live to see the age of 85 has now died from COVID-19. But right down to our children, although our racial minority children only make up 41, 42% of the population, they're making up about 75% of those children who died from COVID-19. So, you know, it's a, it's a stark reality that for us, um, we, we know there's a saying that says your zip code is a more important determinant than your genetic code. And with COVID-19, we're, we're kind of seeing that, that it's the factors that play into what your community structure looks like. You know, where do you work? We, we talk about these essential workers, right? Mm. Um, we know they're more likely to be infected because of the working conditions. We also know those persons, because they don't have a livable wage, are more likely to be in 
high densely populated um, areas of residency. And what does that do when we say to social distance in a house where five to ten people are staying in a three-bedroom place? It's not possible. And unfortunately, with this pandemic, we see that the cost of that is someone's life. So, Ebony, being a young influencer professional with like an ever-growing digital presence, and you're very active on Twitter, um, (laughs) how, especially at a time when misinformation is rampant, do you continue to fight upstream and help people find reliable information that could, you know, literally save their lives and be the difference between life and death? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. um, I do what I grew up in, right? Meaning that I don't come from a medical family. Again, I I was the middle of a, a... a single parent home, um, middle child. And so I didn't have access to many resources that I now take for granted, to be completely honest with you, because I can afford to, right? Um, I didn't have a pediatrician growing up. We didn't go to the doctor unless we were sick, and I do mean we were sick. Um, my mom just simply couldn't afford it. It was the choice between either putting food on the table or paying for a copay. And that's not a hard choice to make on a day-to-day basis, right? She did what she had to do. And so when I'm talking and I'm putting forth this information, I'm speaking on knowing what both sides of the fence looks like. I know what the haves have, and I know what the have-nots have, and I know because of that lived experience where the flaws of the systems are. And I also know in that lived experience that putting something up on a, on a um, local health department's website is not how to reach the people. We're not going to that website. Um, don't you know? Putting it up on the CDC and, and and putting up information on the FDA website. We're not going to that website. It's not tailored towards um, our population of people. It's not. Um, and so, what my approach and my consulting firm's approach is through edutaining, meaning we want to make the learning process and the health literacy, the translation of this scientific data digestible for people. And so, we meet them exactly where they are. And if they are on social media, then I'll be there <laughs> from 1 a.m. <laughs> it feels like, <laughs> you know, it's, it feels like it's nonstop, but particularly in this pandemic, the reason why it is kettle to the ground is because every day, even right now, when we're saying, oh, we're doing so well and we're vaccinating 4 million people a day, we're still burying, literally burying 700 people a day. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. And in the wake of all this, unfortunately, we have now at least a total of 40,000 new orphans left by COVID-19 because we are having people die younger and younger and younger, and they're leaving behind children. And so we don't have time to be tired. We have to keep going. You are listening to Envision on News Radio 989-1070 WINA. We're here with Dr. Hilton. I have a I want to piggyback on on something you were talking about when we when we think about representation and you having a, a point of view that's probably very different, right? Not growing up in a, in a medical family, growing up in a single family home and obviously ascending to the level where you are now personally and professionally. How important is not only minority representation in, you know, kind of the space in general, but especially in healthcare, right? And, and along the lines of either race, gender, sexual orientation, religion. I mean, how important is that and how does that affect patient experience? I think it's important across the board, not only in terms of just health, but any type of, of professional business entity, when you, when you think about it, oftentimes the board, the CEO, um, they don't look like the customers that they're trying to serve, right? Um, and therefore, we oftentimes spend, I think, a lot of time 
creating these plans and these projects that don't meet the meet the need of the people, and therefore they're not effective. We we waste time, we waste money, we waste a lot of resources mm. in the form of human capital that's trying to create these um, projects. But what we do know is that the customer in in medicine, if we're thinking about people, patients as being customers of the healthcare system. We know that they automatically will know what the problems are of the system because they have to navigate it, and therefore they can directly tell you what the solutions are. They're not – we have to turn the tides on the way we think about um, the producer and the consumer, right, um, mm. and truly say, consumer, I need you not to just be a focus group where I talk to you one time and I <laughs> kind of let you go. I literally need you on the board as a paid person to sit here and tell me what was your experience and how do we fix it. And that way we can get rid of this redundancy and truly be as profitable in whatever form of what profit looks like in that, um, in that entity. If it's in healthcare, then profitable means that we have less sick people living in our society, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's what it should be. But, um, but yeah, but, we get, but that's, that's the way we do it. And that's what this pandemic has forced us to do. You know, we see mobile clinics pop up left and right because people said, I simply cannot get to the hospital. Um, we see community-led initiatives where people are doing paper registrations because people do not have Wi-Fi. Um, mm. And I hope that that doesn't become a temporary move, that we see that this is a problem that's longstanding and we need to set firm roots to address it. So if there's no Wi-Fi in that community, we need to place it there for free. <laughs> If um, if there's no if we needed to set up a mobile clinic in a church, that means that there was no hospital, no no health resource in that community. We need to set one up in that community and have it be free and not mobile, where it changes the location every week, but a permanent fixture. Yeah. So that's actually kind of a good follow-up to this next question, and and you might have just answered it. If you could implement one healthcare reform to create a more equitable health system, what would that look like? Yeah, um, well, actually, and I think it, as, when I think about health, um, a couple things come to mind. For one, health is political. We, we know it is. Um, and, and all the policies that play into it, if we don't think health is political, we can look at Flint, Michigan, water system and see how a policy was created that has directly impacted not only the health of the people that are living there now, but for generations will be able to see the impact in the children that were allowed to ingest this water, right? Um, so I, I think broadly in terms of of what the healthcare system needs, um, and it's, it's not only in terms of policy, but also all the social determinants of health and the policies that help to create those, right? Because we see, again, with COVID-19, it's where you work that has the influence on whether or not you get infected. It's where you live that has an impact on whether or not you get infected, treated, and tested. Um, it's the amount of money you have in your bank account that tells us whether or not you're afforded the luxury of saying, I have an outbreak at my work. I'm not going to go to work today. I can rely on my savings. Many, many millions of Americans do not have that option. And so if I'm thinking in terms of what what would I want to implement, it literally is a consulting firm came up with this idea of a department of equity. So just like we have a department of secretary, a depart, or department of secretary, department of um, education, department of, of transportation, you know, of health, we need a Department of Equity on the federal, state, and local level where we do have a Secretary of Equity 
um, that can literally look at all the policies that are going through each and every other department to say, let's look at this with an equity lens. Is this taxpayer's money that these, you know, marginalized and these vulnerable populations are donating into the system, when the policies come out of those different departments, are they equitable to not unfairly target those same people? And, and whether that's along the lines of race, gender, sexual orientation, um, yeah. And, and if we had that, if we had the same amount of money in the Department of Equity that we have for the Department of Defense that has $740 billion every year, mm. imagine if we had just half of that money, what those resources could do to the most vulnerable of communities and help to strengthen our nation because if our foundation is weak, our entire structure built on top of it has no choice but to crumble. So. Mm. A mere, a mere three hundred eighty billion, I think, would would do would do the trick. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> this right. is this is Envision from the United Way of Greater Charlottesville News Radio ninety eight nine ten seventy AM WINA. So we're back on Envision from the United Way of Greater Charlottesville here on News Radio at WINA. We're talking to Ebony Hilton today. Dr. Ebony Hilton is Associate Professor of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Physician at the University of Virginia. And, you know, you're one of the first um, in many things, actually, Ebony, but specifically um, as it relates to your education. So you're the first African-American female anesthesiologist since the Medical University of South Carolina opened in 1824. It's incredible. Talk a little bit about that experience and how it shaped you, you know, professionally and as a person. Yeah, you know, it's, it's incredible and, and also a little um, sad. I'm also the first um, African-American, I think, in total and definitely um, female um, critical care anesthesiologist at the University of Virginia. And it's one of those things that it, when you when you think about it, it's, um, it's a bittersweet moment because what I do know is that there are plenty of qualified black people, um, black women, black men, that should have had this position long before me. Mm. But it shows you just how short in time span that we've had this, quote-unquote, free nation, and, um, and how far we still have yet to go. And what I tell people is I may be the first, but I refuse to be the last. Mm-hmm. Because, again, those people that live in that experience, We've navigated the system. We know what's wrong. And with health being such a multifaceted um, kind of being, into the, I mean, it's a, it's a dynamic process of what health truly means. You need someone that has the experience of all of those different types of, um, you know, obstacles to overcome that when you come in contact with another patient, you can say, I understand, and this is what we have to do. You can read through the lines. Um, to understand and address the true root of their disease process. You are listening to Envision from the United Way of Greater Charlottesville on News Radio 98.9, AM WINA. Big thanks to our sponsor, Ty Cooper, with LifeView Marketing and Visuals for support of the show. So an interesting thing to me is, I think, this theory of trauma. And I know I, I was, I was, I got in a in a Twitter rabbit hole yesterday, sort of of your own building, and I was just reading, you know, some of the some of the stuff that you've tweeted and things that you were involved in. And and you mentioned trauma, and I think what was interesting about it is that we think about it often as as you know medical visible kind of tangible trauma, right? There's a wound, there's mm-hmm. there's something that is is you know in need of fixing. 
how how salient to you is the trauma of and especially right now and especially currently being black in America and and thinking about sort of the the historical trauma and, and I think the question of this is how do you personally carry that as a person as a professional you know and, and as someone who again as we've talked about is is the voice of of a large a large group of people um and I think you were saying I'm a voice um I honestly don't speak of myself in that way um usually I'm using Twitter as a form to just get out the um the emotion that emotions we know mental health is physical health it's not just something um, that you that washes over you when you see the murder of George Floyd. Black people are, are humans in general. We're created to see something that looks like us, translate it in our brains, in our mind, literally store it there as saying, look at what happened to that. You don't want it to happen to you. Mm-hmm. And it causes you when you're seeing that type of violence and trauma. Which literally, when your heart rate is racing, when you feel your breathing patterns start to change, that's because hormones in your body have now been altered. And particularly what I'm talking about that is literally your fight or flight system. Mm-hmm. It's your hypothalamus, talks to your pituitary gland, and that's all in your brain, talks down to your adrenal gland, which sits right above your kidneys, and says, you are now um, running from a tiger, for the lack of a better analogy, mm-hmm. right? I need you to see what that, that potential violence is there and know that you now are in a fight-or-flight time period. And so that's where you get that racing heart, the changing in your breathing patterns. And what we know is that the reason that that happens is you have an increase in your stress hormones. So cortisol, glucagon, um, your catecholamines are your adrenaline, right? And what does that do chronically? Well, what we know in medicine is that chronic activation, chronically being stressed, is directly linked to hypertension or high blood pressure, to diabetes, it's directly linked to obesity, directly linked to cancer, not only cancer formation, but also the more malignant forms of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, and oddly enough, we're seeing with, with mothers, for women, before they even become pregnant, if you are chronically stressed, then you are more likely, once you do become pregnant, to bury your child before their first birthday. Hmm. That's wow. what, that's, and, and we don't talk enough about that because when you are a racial minority, or even, and we can extend that out to all the marginalized groups, when you're trying to stake, put your stake in the ground and say, I matter too, and it's that constant fight to get validation that you matter, when it's a constant fight to even, if you're a, a black woman, and we know you're statistically more likely to have to have two or three jobs mm-hmm. to make ends meet, what does that do when you're carrying a fetus? And is that why black women are 50% more likely to have preterm labor, right? Hmm. Um, and what does that do to a body? If you're born prematurely and your body hasn't had time, your organs haven't had time to grow in the comfort of your mother where she is giving you nutrients. And now the external world has to give you those nutrients for those organs to develop. Then are we surprised that that child who was born prematurely can't read in the third grade? But yet we're making mm-hmm. prison cells for the prison, um, the school to prison pipelines for that third grade reading level. And it happened before he was even born or mm. she was even born. Yeah. That's the problem that America has to address and what that trauma of seeing these things over and over again, what it does to literally a human being. And do we care is the question I have for America. And how, if we do care, how do we address it? Mm. And if we don't care, we need to face that mirror and accept that and say it. But <laughs> to, 
to, I think it's trauma on top of trauma when we allow these things to happen and then we carry on the next day as if it doesn't matter. Um, when if we're looking at the case of George Floyd, we literally had a nine-year-old on mm. stage in the courtroom testifying to what she witnessed in a murder. Mm-hmm. And my question is, who has checked on that nine-year-old child asked her if she, does she feel safe? Who has checked to make sure that she doesn't have any signs and symptoms of PTSD? That's the problem. And with it being televised, you take that nine-year-old child and you multiply it by a million because they're also watching the TV screen. And it's tragic. You know, speaking of trauma and and tragedy, this isn't local, but how are you processing um, another police killing of an unarmed black man here in America? Yeah, I mean... It's one of those things, um, I, I say I grew up in the gap, so meaning that my mom and, and people before her, they grew up during the civil rights um, movement. They grew up during the times, my, my grandmother literally picked cotton. Um, they grew up during seeing signs that said colors only. Mm. I grew up in, the, in that post era of where we said, oh, okay, we're, uh, you know, we're post Tuskegee. I grew up, ten, I was born 10 years after Tuskegee, right? Um, I didn't see for colors only on walls. But then now the generation after me, my nieces and nephews, they've grown up in this era of social media where they're seeing Trayvon Martin um, when they were when they were kids. You know, I was in, I think it was in after med school when Trayvon Martin happened. Um, and I wasn't prepared to, to see that and to, to recognize that. And so this whole flood of emotions, in growing up in that gap of not of being this child where there was definitely still racism, but not in my face as much as it is, mm-hmm. I've had to grow up really quickly to say, how do I process this? And I'm one of those persons that I don't see a problem without seeing a solution. And so that's why I've been very active of saying, I'm not going to allow America to not face it. I'm going to show you these are the flaws of the system. And then we're going to say, but th- and this is how we're going to address it to instead of, reporting the same disparities across the board for, for education and our children being expelled at higher rates, um, for lack of housing and the, the lending industries being predatory. Um, instead of report, reporting the same way of disparities in health and how we have implicit and explicit bias within the walls of the hospital, I want to start having some accountability and tying metrics to that. And if it comes to tying dollar size to it where companies are penalized for it, if that's the way that we get to having, um, you know, equality within America, then so be it. Um, but we have to start making, and when I say we, vulnerable populations have to start pushing to say, we are no longer accept the same numbers for generation after generation. Um, this is how we're going to tell you accountability has to be in the form of, and here's the structure of, of what to follow. And we can do that. And with that, we are done. Big thanks. To our guest, Up and Adam, this morning, Dr. Ebony Hilton. If you guys have any ideas for the show or want to get in touch with us, make sure you follow us on social media at United Way Seville. Drop us a note at envision at unitedwayseville.org. And make sure, if you don't already, follow Dr. Hilton on Twitter at EbonyJHilton underscore MD and check out her work at goods.consulting.com. For Roger Respeto, this is Bryce Thomas, and we'll catch you next week.